0: with the end of the year and fall quickly approaching upon us, one of the things that we often see is our baskets of fruit. And there are different kinds, not of fruit, but of vegetables usually, and different kinds of vegetables. And we see it in different ways and, and in, displayed in different ways. It's the end of the summer harvest and time for us to partake of the fruit. And I know that in the past, and I remember years ago, seeing articles written about this, and it was always interesting, they would say, to plant a row of lettuce and let us be good Christians and what they would say after that. And then sometimes they would say, let us plant some squash, squash out gossip or squash out some other type of of living that we ought not have. Or you'll see something like turnips, plant a row of turnips and turn up for worship or turn up for service or turn up for, you know, different things. Now, in addition to that, I remember seeing some that would have beans be an evangelistic person or something of that nature. Or sometimes you might see something like plant a row of peas. And then they'll have something like uh, P for peace and P for um, pursuit of, to God and P for different things like that. Now, we're going to be looking at let us. And there are a number of let us in the Bible. In fact, I was kind of surprised when I did a computer search for the term let us. I was surprised at the number of times it's used within scripture and it's used oftentimes in the New Testament as well. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it is used 12 times. Now I believe it's the most used in the book of Hebrews as far as the New Testament is concerned, but it's used 12 times in Hebrews. And we're gonna be looking at three of those times. I suppose a person could preach a series of sermons on let us. The next most often times it is used is the book of Romans. And you could probably, uh, oh, you could easily get several sermons out of that by itself. But we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through, or 22 through 25, actually. So in Hebrews 10 and verse 22, he said, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, one of the things that is very oftentimes used within Scripture and oftentimes used with different methods of teaching are questions, questions with answers. And that's how we're going to look at these Verses that we're going to examine this evening with questions and with answers. I remember The first trip I made to Ukraine We went down to a place called Belosirkov, which means white church is what the term actually means And we tried to plant the church there and we used the materials because it was suggested to us and it was translated into Russian by brother Jim Waldron and that material was simply a series of questions with short answers. And so that's what we use that particular day. So that's what, how we're going to approach this. The first question that we have, maybe, is to what are we to draw near? Well, the answer to that question is actually goes back to verse 19. Now, the this particular text begins or this particular context rather begins in verse 19. He said, "Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ." So what are we to draw near to? Well, the answer is to the holiest by the blood of Christ. Now, the holiest is a figure taken from the Old Testament. If you don't know anything about the book of Hebrews, Hebrews all the way through the book, refers back to the Old Testament. and takes various figures from the Old Testament and makes New Testament applications of those things. And in the Old Testament, the holiest, or the holy of holies, the most holy place, was within the tabernacle, then later on within the temple. And it's used today, well, it was used then as the dwelling place of God, and it is used today with reference to the heavens and which is the dwelling place of God. And thus the idea is to draw near to God through or by means of the the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us that we can approach the holiest of all, that we can go before the throne of God without the blood of Christ, there is no approach to the throne of God. And so we have to have the blood of Christ. Now, how do we draw near to God? Well, the fact is, the way we draw near is by worship and by service. And that's what this is a reference to. So we draw near in worship and in service by the blood of Christ. Now, the second question we want to answer is, how do we draw near? Well, the text answers this question, actually provides three different ways to answer the question. The first is with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, the idea of a true heart is a sincere heart. Now, sincere is really kind of an interesting word. The word sincere actually means without wax. And the term has reference to the big columns that they would build in the Roman Empire. And sometimes those columns of stone would have flaws in them, and they would fill it up with wax. And the term then meant a column that was sincere was without wax, nothing to cover up the mistakes. Now, being a woodworker, I take wax sticks that have have collar to them, and I'll pick out a color that matches the wood and the stain that I've put on a product and we'll fill nail holes and cracks with that wax stick. And that was the same basic concept that you had at that particular time. So we draw near to God with a true heart, a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now the full assurance of faith means that it's done without wavering. It's done in confidence. It's to turn to God in full assurance. Now we know that faith is necessary. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek in him. So faith is absolutely necessary. But you know what this verse is actually talking about? Not so much the necessity of faith, but it's, Don't approach God half-heartedly. That's really what this text is about. To approach God half-heartedly is no approach at all. You might as well just stay home and not do anything to approach God half-heartedly. We must approach God in worship with full assurance of faith. Then the, the next thing he says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now, Christ atoning sacrifice, um, or through Christ's atoning sacrifice, and through our turning from sin produces guilt-free conscience. Now, without the atonement of Jesus Christ, and without our turning to him and away from sin, there is no freedom from conscience. Now it is the fact that we have difficulty with our conscience at times, and we, we, after having done something that we've done when we were young or sometimes even when we we're old, and we depart from the living God and do the various things, is it not the case that we remember them? It is the case, and we think oftentimes about those mistakes that we've made in life and that sin that was that engulfed us in our times past but you know what we can be assured of because of Hebrews chapter 8 and actually it's verses 8 through verse 12 then we know and we can be assured that once God forgives us he'll not remember he promised that they he would remember their sin no more and so that ought to provide a guilt-free conscience but notice also with, with this reference here, a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Do you think that repentance is involved in that? Yeah, for sure. Without repentance, there is no turning our hearts or having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And then having our bodies washed with pure water. Now I've read a lot of commentaries on this particular thing and sometimes denominational commentaries don't want to to admit this but this refers to the the bath of regeneration or the rewashing of the generation. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5 Paul referred to that. Also Ephesians chapter or Titus chapter 3 verse 5 and also Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. In fact, when you look through the New Testament, now the Old Testament, that's not the case, but when you look through the New Testament, there's only one type of washing throughout the New Testament, and that's a reference to baptism. Notice how faith, repentance, and baptism fits this, this. In order to worship God correctly, to approach the throne of God, by the blood of Jesus, there's got to be belief involved. There has to be faith involved. There has to be repentance involved. And there has to be that washing with pure water. And all three figures of speech is really a reference to gospel obedience. And so we remember then to draw near to God begins with, not, it's not the end of it, but it begins with the conversion process. And we must always remember that. We must be a Christian if we're going to draw near to God. Well, verse number 23 continues. He said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So the first question then is, what are we to hold fast? But I think really there's a underlying question that's within this because sometimes we don't actually understand that. The word hold fast means to cling to. I remember when the kids were young. And I'm talking about the boys being young and girls weren't even around. And we had this clothesline in back of our house like most people did back then. And the boys would want to reach up, and they couldn't grab a hold of the bar of the clothesline. And so I'd lift them up, and they would hold on to that bar. And I'd say, Hold on. Well, that's that idea of cling, not let go. And it was amazing how long they would, would hold on, and I would be there ready for them. And when they finally would let go, I'd catch them before they hit the ground. Well, you know, that's the, the concept here. Hold on. It's not hold on like a monkey does. If you put something in a jar that a monkey wants to see, he'll put in his hand in it, grab a hold of it, and then he can't get his hand out of the jar. Well, we all know kids like that in the candy jar or in the cookie jar. Uh, Probably Hayden has been guilty of that, I would suspect. But nonetheless, you know, they they don't let go. They don't want to let go because they want that piece of candy or that, that, that cookie or whatever it might be. Well, there are things that we need to let go of. And those are the things that would deal with sin and the things that would lead to sin. We need to let go of those. But there are things we ought to also hold on to. And one of the things that we ought to hold on to is the profession of our faith. Now, the word profession is the old King James word that's translated oftentimes confession, and that's what he's actually talking about, is the confession of our faith. Now, just keep in mind that there are at least three types of confession within the New Testament. There is the confession that we make when we become Christians, and that is we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we make that verbal confession, we make it with the mouth. And so we recognize that we must make that, conversion, that confession. In Romans 10 verses uh, nine and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now that's not the only thing that we must do. It is interesting when you go out into the denominational world that sometimes they'll use this passage and say, there you go, you must believe and confess. And then they'll turn around and they'll say something like, but I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Well, notice what Paul said in that particular verse. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, And shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead could the thief on the cross believe in the resurrection absolutely not it was after his lifetime now he believed that Christ would go into his kingdom no doubt about that but he could not believe in the resurrection the thief on the cross cannot and could not believe what we are required to believe and that is the resurrection now, so we, we think about the confession with the mouth, but isn't it the case that we also confess with our life? If we're standing around telling dirty jokes, are we really confessing Christ? No, not at all. If we're sitting around the bar and drinking booze like the rest of everybody else that are in there, are we confessing Christ? No, we're not confessing Christ. You see there's more to it than just simply with the mouth. We have to confess him with the life. And I believe that's what this verse is actually about. Now confession with the mouth is surely involved, but we confess our faith by the things that we say and by the things that we do. Now it's really more the idea of the confession of our hope, the hope that we have in Christ now another question we ought to ask how are we to hold fast well the text says for us clearly he says without wavering literally the word that's used here and it's the only time this particular word is used means without bending now we know people that well they will will sort of hold fast But the next thing you know, when something comes around, they'll bend this way or they'll bend that way. But we can't do that. We've got to stand firm. We're not going to allow the the pressures of the world and peer pressure to take hold of us and bend us one way or the other. And we can bend both ways. We can bend to become liberal-minded in that we take liberties that God has not taken liberties, or to become so stringent that we make demands that God does not make demands. Isn't that what Jesus said to the apostles? That, and the promise that he made to the apostles, both to Peter in in Matthew the 16th chapter and to the apostles in Matthew the 18th chapter. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, it wasn't that the apostles or the disciples were binding and loosing. Literally, it means whatever, has been, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall have already been bound or loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing is determined by God, not by man, not by the apostles. They were inspired and they inspired uh, by inspiration. They wrote down what is bound and what is loose. And we have no right, no authority to loose where God has not loosed or to bind where God has not bound. And so we're not to waver in the profession of our faith. We stick to God's word, that's really what it is. We hold fast and we cling to God's word and we don't give it up. Now the Christians need to be then unmoved and because of that, we are able then to avoid apostasy. Now another question is, why are we to hold fast? Well, the the text says, for he is faithful that promise that's why we are to hold fast god promised and god will faithfully reward those who hold fast who does not let go now do we not call ourselves godly and don't we try to to live according to what god has said that's being godly if god is faithful what do you think you think christians ought to be faithful too well yeah i can't even imagine us trying not to be faithful and yet i've known a number of people that were not faithful and did not continue in faithfulness we need to be faithful because he is faithful that promise and if we will be faithful then he will be faithful in his promise in the reward in the end of time the last verse that, or verses that we will consider in verse 24 is the is let us passage, but verse 25 has to be considered with reference to that. In verse 24 and 25, he says, Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now the first thing that he notes is, or that we note, is who are we to consider? The word consider is the idea of focused upon or to look upon. And it's it's the idea of, of that we are to consider, we to look at and consider one another. Now I know a lot of people consider others. And they can, boy, they can look at everybody else and they can see everybody else's fault, but they don't, they're not able to look at their own self. Hmm, that reminds me of the words of Jesus with the man that had the beam in his eye, and he was looking for the man that had the boat in his eye. Well, we can look at everybody else's faults, but we cannot see ourselves. And so the term let us includes self but also consider one another includes self we ought to look at self and we ought to look at one another then then we have to consider why are we to consider one another well the text again says in order to provoke now you know it's interesting this particular passage was alluded to several times in the lectureship that we just got back from And almost every one of them said, there are folks that they got the provoking down. They can provoke everybody for various reasons, but not for the right reasons. And and it is the case. We know all kinds of people that they're able to provoke and they're good at provoking. In fact, I always think about one man and probably have talked about this before and I, I went up to him. He was a brother in Christ and he needed to, to be at least to consider some different things. And I, and I said something about it. If there's a fuss in the brotherhood, he was in the midst of it. And he says, yeah, I was, and I'm good at it. Well, I'm not sure that we need to be good at, at being a part of fusses in the brotherhood. That's not what we need to do. He was good at provoking, but he wasn't good at what he should have been provoking. So so we, they are to provoke into loving love and good works. Now the purpose of the provoking here is with reference to lending support. We consider one another in order to lend support to one another and then we provoke in the sense of encourage or incite or to help Christians. In other words, Well, the reality is is that Christians are not to consider how to provoke. Christians are to consider one another. There's a lot of difference there. It's not the provoking that we are to be considering. It's one another that we are to be considering. The provoking is done in the next statement. What, for what purpose are we to provoke? Well, it says, unto love and good works, or to love and good works. That's that's what provokes. When a person shows love, does it not provoke love? When a person does good works, does it not encourage good works? Doesn't incite good works? You see, the love and good works are what incites love and good works. That's what's being considered here. Now, when Christians consider one another, we show love and good works. And if we're not showing love and good works, then we need to really look at ourselves a little bit closer. Not consider everybody else, but look at self. And we have to ask ourselves, am I being a part of this? Am I provoking others by my love and by my good works? Or am I inciting others by my divisive character or divisiveness? So love and good works stir up love and good works. And the final question is, when are we to provoke into love and good works? Well, you see, it is really shown in the, or during the time of the assembly. You remember verse 25? Well, verse 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now we don't have time to talk about verse 25 and all the different things that are found in it i went back to my notes and was looking at that particular passage and i i have over a page of notes on that particular verse and the various aspects of that verse so we so that'd be a sermon in itself but the fact is when we gather together and when we assemble together do we not encourage one another that's the most basic thing. Just our presence, being in the assembly, encourages one another. And then pleasant greetings as we come in, and present pleasant uh, introductions and different things, incite love and good works. And then the singing to one another, praying with one another, the preaching of the gospel, that all are, are efforts of love and good works and that incites love and good works. Now, this is a reason for the assembly. Now, I know that sometimes in the past, people would say, well, the purpose of the assembly is to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, I went to Latvia back in 1992 for the first time. I believe it was 92, maybe it was even 91. I don't remember for sure. But anyway, there were six gospel preachers that traveled together. And we were got together one day, I don't remember what day it was, seemed like it was Friday, maybe Saturday. And we needed to make plans for the assembly. We had already decided that we would, would have an assembly together. The church did not exist in Riga, Latvia at that particular time. So we had to plan, where are we going to meet? When are we going to meet? What are we going to do with the contribution? What are we going to do? And who's going to be leaders in those things? And one man, he specifically, in fact, he was the oldest man that was there. And this man has passed since that time, but he was the oldest man there. And he said, well, we've got to partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, that's only one purpose of the assembly. That is one purpose of the assembly, Acts 20 verse seven, but that's not the only purpose of the assembly. Doesn't verse 25, or actually 24 and 25, putting them together help us to understand one purpose of the assembly is to incite one another to love and good works. We gather together for that reason. Now I realize, and everybody's surely that our rational people can uh, realizes that there are times when we absolutely cannot get together with the Lord's church. Maybe it's because of illness, maybe it's because of an accident, maybe it's because of, of other reasons, but there are things that do happen and in, in that we are not able to, to assemble with the saints. I remember on a couple of different occasions, traveling and decided to be in a certain place at a certain time because i planned ahead and we knew that the lord's church met there at certain times and i think about going to a lectureship one time traveling down to through south uh, southeast missouri and going through a town that i knew that they met at six o'clock on sunday evening well we pulled into the parking lot and we sat there, nobody came, nobody came. Six o'clock came, nobody was there. We waited a little bit after six, nobody was there. And then I called the preacher after that. Well, they didn't meet that evening for whatever reason. I don't remember the reason. Well, you know, we that happens sometimes where we, uh, we miss the assembling of ourselves together. But the fact is, we must make it a priority And when we assemble together, and though there are times in life when we can't, but when we assemble together, we encourage one another. I think about a brother, a good brother in Christ, Brother Dallas Wilmoth, maybe some of you know him. He lived over in Cleveland and he was a good man. And I remember him coming to services and though he didn't feel like being there, but he would come and he would be a part of it. And he was such an encouragement because he put it first within his life. So there's a reason for the assembly. And notice the vital connection between the the assembly and the encouragement that we get. You cannot separate those two things. But let's think about this a little bit another way. If the church is fussing and fighting, and we come together and we regret coming together, then don't you think there needs to be somebody that needs to make some changes within their lives? Obviously so. If the church is fussing and fighting, biting, and devouring one another, there needs to be some changes. But when the church loves one another, when the church cares for one another, when the church does what Jesus taught us to do in Matthew or in John 13 verse 35, when we do what Christ taught to love one another, then it is an encouragement to be in the assembly. So the bottom line is, let us plant three rows of lettuce. Let us, the first row is let us draw near to God in worship and service and let's be sure to plant that row of lettuce in drawing near to god and then the second row let us cling to the confession of our faith and let's not let go of it but let us plant that row that we might harvest from it and then the third row let us be thoughtful one of another in order to incite and love and good works by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What a marvelous picture that, that the Hebrews writer painted for us. Let us be sure to fulfill those things within our lives. This evening we do want to offer an invitation. There may be someone here that would need to respond to it, whether to become a Christian by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, which we've already talked about, Or maybe there's someone that would need to respond to the invitation because they're not living up to these uh, rows of lettuce. Let us then be, be careful to examine ourselves. And if we have a need, won't you come? Won't you come as together we stand and sing to encourage you?